Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and I reckon this is episode 193. It's me having a chat with Sean Plunkett. You know Sean Plunkett, the broadcaster. Uh, these days, he's almost an entertainment, really. I get him to admit that, I think, on this on this chat, during this chat. But uh, I'd never met Sean. Um, I had talked to him on his radio show a couple of times over the years. We'd corresponded a tiny bit. I was interested to talk to him. I reached out to him, and I was pleasantly surprised that he wrote straight back and said, yeah, I'll come around and have a chat. But then that's his job, to have a chat. So in that sense, it's not a surprise. I wanted to get to know him, and I wanted to find out when the change happened, because I reckon there's been a change. I think he was a great broadcaster, and I don't I don't know him personally, so I don't know anything about, um, well, I do now, I know him now, but I just wanted to find out his story, because I had grown up watching him on um, on TV, particularly on Fairgo, and uh, of course, for many years, he was on Morning Report, and really the dream team of Morning Report and on Radio New Zealand, I think, and I think he was one of the country's great interviewers and then he went to talkback radio and then he went even further down the path of being um you know all this rubbish about i'm naughty broadcaster and i'm this and that and now he's running on some sort of free speech ticket which uh, feels insincere to me or at least um uh, misinformed and uh, so we took we got into that i had a really really nice chat with with sean i really enjoyed talking to him um, so give this a chance if you're not a fan please give it a chance you might learn something there's a great history of uh, of New Zealand media and broadcasting and here are some really good war stories um, so yeah I like this chat and I hope you do too this is me talking with I guess controversial shock jock broadcaster Sean Plunkett I normally say to people before I hit record uh, if there's anything you don't want me to bring up or anything you don't want to be asked about or say that's going to make you look silly or whatever and I thought I can't say that to you because you know you've been on air forever yeah and if anyone's going to make you look silly you're going to do that yeah potentially (laughs) right yeah well no there's look look wherever (laughs) you want to go and if I don't want to answer a question I'll say I don't want to answer I prefer not to answer well that's the the more serious the more serious um, thing about this is you're a far more experienced person at asking people questions than I am so you're going to know what, what you want to do and, yeah, yeah. and when well, you want to do it. We'll see how we go. I don't know if we've actually, actually properly ever met. No, I don't think we have, Simon. We've talked on the we've radio. We've talked on the radio. I've talked on your show. Stuff, yeah. Exactly. We're, we're aware of each other. I've followed your work for years. And, yes, you've had me on your show a couple now, of times. Now, are we rolling now? Yeah, we're rolling. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, fuck yeah. Man. It's good. I had to get my line in about you saying <laughs> dumb things. I had to hit record. What do you, th- what do you think? This is amateur hour, but yeah, it comes yeah. with laughs. Yeah, you see, yeah. normally I'd say, okay, we're on the record now. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I normally do that too. But no, that yeah. was good. You just slid <laughs> right into it. Oh, suddenly we're on the record. We're just having a yarn and bang, I'm on the spot. Yeah, there you are. Yeah. See? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I feel like... I definitely was in the same space as you out at Avalon at the good, you know, you'd pop yeah. on the, I was on the Good Morning Show, but I was just That's on right. as a music reviewer, so, yeah. but I don't think we would have ever talked then. Yeah. What year um, was that, Simon? That you well, were? I was doing it from about, t- I reckon I was doing it from about 2005 till about 2010 or 11. Yeah, no, see, I wasn't at Avalon then. The, you I, must I, have just been out there as a guest what, then. Well, I, I popped out there as a guest mm. and did various stuff mm. out there. But I worked out there for two or three years on Fair, Fair Go, go. Yeah, which yeah. was yeah. late nineties, mid to mm. late nineties, I think. No, I remember you. Yeah. Wa- I remember watching you on Fair Go, but yeah. um, 
and I knew that was filmed out there. But you, I definitely have a memory of you more than once being in there. But as I say, I was there for quite a few years, so you're probably yeah. just out there as a guest yeah. for something. Yeah, I've been out there for years. Yeah, yeah. So where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Porirua. Mm. Porirua East. Um, well, the nice part of Porirua East, the, the snobby part, mm. which was a little enclave called Ranui Heights. And I grew up, originally my parents came up from Christchurch. We lived in Plymouth, and my parents got divorced when I was very young, when I was five, I think, five or six. And Dad went off into town, and Mum bought a place in Ranui Heights in Porirua, but we caught, my brother and sister and I caught the train every day down to Plymouth School, so we went to Plymouth School mm. all the way through, and I was a foundation pupil of Aotea College. For one year I went there in Porirua, then Mum moved into town couple of teams at Wellington College which I hated and then I probably begged actually to be sent off to boarding school um, in Nelson which I loved yeah you know I really enjoyed uh, you said they broke up when you were uh, divorced when you were you know five or six like do, yeah. you have a fir- do you have a firm memory of that oh god yeah. yeah and it was long before it was fashionable Simon um, how many are the kids um, well looking back and I'm really lucky I've got a, a cohort of friends from Plymouth School Mm. from kindergarten at Plymouth five or six of us still tight still Mm. catch up two three times a year keep in contact with each other and it's a real blessing Um, but I think talking back to them over the years yes I realised there were maybe two other or three other kids I knew Yeah, and that was a school big primary school 500 kids went all the way up to four because do you think like normally the parents they just sort of Gritted it out, right? Until, oh, yeah. the, until the kids moved on. Yeah, they, but they, there's a lot that um, would have broken up yeah. when the kids went to trade school or training yeah. or uni. Yeah, but we were definitely yeah. the fact that our parents didn't live together was certainly set us apart. My brother and sister and I set mm. us apart from the other kids. And of course, you think everyone else has a perfect nuclear family, like we watched on TV back in the seventies. Mm. And of course, it, you know they didn't. And as you talk to your friends and as you grow up together and talk about their childhoods everyone had you know one of my best friends I found out was adopted I didn't find out till he was 30 Mm. but it explained a whole lot Um, so that was quite interesting because I think we were the only kids from Porirua at Plymouth in school yeah which wasn't quite a wide enclave it had the par around the corner Patricia Grace's son Simon was in my year at, at primary school um but it was a bit weird. I didn't feel like I fitted, quite fitted in, mm. and my parents being divorced was a big part of that. Yeah, yeah, huge part of that. Who did you side with? Well, I stayed with my mother, my yeah. father, and my father remarried. But that uh, doesn't eventually. necessarily mean you. Did yeah. you side with her though? Oh, as well? I don't. Or I don't know. We quite got into that. that you, yeah. I don't know that we quite got into that. But I, Dad was a pretty distant figure in some ways. But I got to know him much better, and probably of all my siblings, was in some ways the closest to him because I went into journalism, and he was a journalist, Mm -hmm. and had been a journalist his whole life. So we kind of connected through that through through our professional endeavours, and actually, Dad wouldn't call it a profession; he always said it was a trade. Mm. Um, Well, it was. He would have been doing it. Yeah. So that was my connection with Dad. 
And I didn't. He certainly didn't influence me to be a journalist or go into mm. broadcasting. In fact, he said, "If you do that, I can't help you. In fact, me being in it will probably be difficult for you, etc., etc." So, what did he? What did he do? He was within his trade. He was. He started as a cadet on the Gisborne. Gosh, was it called the Gisborne Herald? Yeah, that sounds right. And his first assignment with a photographer was with Peter Bush. And they covered the stock sales. At Gisborne, I see Peter Bush, who's still kicking. Yeah. My dad isn't. He died about 10, 12 years ago. And uh, Bushy um, always talks about being invited back to my dad's parents' place for Sunday roast and mm. talk to my grandfather about communism because my grandfather was a waterfront, true blue waterfront strike worker, mm-hmm. never went back to work on the waterfront after the strike and was an avowed communist. <laughs> and Bushy still uh, says, gosh, that night, your, what your grandfather didn't know about communism <laughs> no <laughs> he was also a drunk um, so you know dad didn't push me into journalism but I always liked words I liked history and I was a bit lazy so I didn't want to you know I didn't want to become an academic I didn't care much for money and still don't so it just seemed you should do something you were good at and had an interest in mm. And when I left Nelson College, um, I applied for the broadcasting, and uh, not the broadcasting, the journalism school at what was then Wellington Polytechnic, and it's now become Massey, much to my dismay, given the way Massey's been dis- uh, behaving. But um, that was it. I did that straight out of school. I think I had... I went on to do a bit of history in Polsai after I'd finished that course. Um, and... I got stuck in the position halfway through the academic year realising that because my grades hadn't been stellar at journalism school, um, I couldn't get the full bursary or even a B bursary. Mm, mm. And the unemployment benefit played more than the B bursary. Um, And I didn't really have a huge relationship with Dad at that time. or any family support. So I went on the dole. I went on the dole for about six months. I've never forgotten that. That was a tough six months. And I only got a job in journalism because I was wearing a sandwich board on Stuart Dawson's corner. And Henry Grant, a guy who I had done the course with, walked past. I was wearing a top hat and tails and advertising cut price paracetamol for Eddie Fletcher Pharmacy. (laughs) And I said, Henry, how are you going? He said, I've just resigned from Radio Windy. I've got a job at Z- News Talk ZB, or ZB as it was mm, then, up in Auckland. Mm. And I said, when did this happen? He said, oh, about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Good luck in Auckland, I said. I dumped the sandwich board in Plymouth Steps, <laughs> and I ran to Radio Windy, which was up above BP Roadmaster, with my top hat under my arm and my tails flying out behind me, and I went up and, and I turned up, rocked up at reception and said, I want to speak to the news editor, and she said, she said, why? And I said, oh, I've got an appointment about a job, which I didn't have. <laughs> I go into his office and I said, my name's Sean Plunkett, I hear you've got a job going for a journalist, I'm ready to start now. And that was it. And if I hadn't done that, I don't know if I ever would have been got in broadcasting. Got off the dole. <laughs> you know, got off the dole, been in broadcasting, been a journalist. Wow. It's funny, isn't it, those stories? There's lots of them, people's first... You know what what sets them up, particularly I think in things like journalism. Yeah, is 
kind of that cold calling yeah dutch carriage yeah foot just going to put my own foot in the door yeah you know i have a i have a slight... and i think i've been rejected by rnz i mm. couldn't apply at tvnz because my dad was a news editor there he by that stage was the regional news editor for television new zealand mm. and oh, everyone said oh you got to go and work in the provinces and i'll be brutally honest i said if that mm. i'm not going to go to Greymouth to learn my trade yeah <laughs> um, and so you know i was bloody lucky yeah i mean i've got my my slight version of that is basically after years of doing my music reviews on student radio and student papers and community papers and applying a couple of times well applying writing to the dominion or the evening post i just ended up writing to one of the people there and saying everyone who does your music reviews is shit except for you you're good but i'd like to help and he kind of thing flattery gets yeah. everywhere somewhere. and he kind of wrote back and said all right then smart ass if yeah. you think you're so good why don't you come in and get every shit cd we don't want to touch mm. and turn it around in a week and i just saw great this is an assignment and that was how i got into yeah the dominion yeah and, you know and I, a lot of people who've done well just grab the moment when it comes well i haven't done well like <laughs> that's a that's well, a that's a broad segue like yeah, i'm yeah, not yeah. not fishing for that i haven't done well but yeah. i'm just saying that, that that's almost like you're yeah. putting your own foot in the door story that's yeah. me going well fuck it i've just got to i just wanted to know i was just like i've got to ask yeah. these people outright yeah and i kind of created a position for myself yeah and it was an unpaid position for a long time too mm. you know it was a total hobby yeah. But it was still getting published in the paper. And it was when, doing something when, you loved and enjoyed. That's right. And when reading the paper meant something. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was like, so people actually did read the paper and once a week there was a whole page of CD reviews. So yeah. people that cared about music could, that's the day they read yeah. the paper. Yeah. And that's how my name, I guess, mm. started to get known. Yeah. And yeah. so that's kind of my version of that. So, you, so you've so you got your top hat and your tails and you get the job. Yeah. Yeah. And what is the job? Is and the it... job was junior reporter. Yeah. Grade one or J one or whatever yeah. it was called <laughs> yeah. back then. So everything... you were doing the cat stuck up tree stories oh, or the, look, you know. I, I was quite lucky. I was covering the police beat. So, and on those days you had to go down to the police station. Oh, yeah, okay. So every morning what yeah. happened overnight, um, sit there, take your notes or use your shorthand. Yeah. Go back and say, were there any great stories or great crimes there? Mm. Um and I got to do a fair bit. It was private radio. It was Radio Windy. It was rock and roll. Mm. Um, and we had a newsroom of about four or five people. And I kind of learned the business there. And mm. I was there for, I think, maybe a year. Um, I had a falling out with my news editor because I was writing humorous ditties about his management style, <laughs> um, which included throwing things at people. <laughs> and... Um, one day he just said to me, he said, if you're so smart, why not go and get a job writing ants? And we were standing literally two feet away from the copy department and I knew the copy team quite well and I took two steps, stuck my head in the door and I said, hey, Wayne, <laughs> got a job for a copywriter? He said, yeah, start Monday. <laughs> and that was it. And I did that for about six months uh, and I enjoyed it, but I had got the bug by then. Yeah. And when they set up Independent Radio News... I went and worked for them and then transferred over to work with Barry Soper. When did you Parliament. first when did you first speak on air? Gosh. Gosh, I probably did my first voice report when I was about twenty. Mm. 
So that would have been... Um, oh, oh, 30 years... Th- uh, no, no, more than 30, 35 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. In that, in that junior role? Yeah. Or yeah, I think I did, probably did a voice report yeah, on yeah, something. Yeah, I can remember getting sent down to cover a court case around the legal challenge to the Springbok tour, um, which was a pretty big story at the time. And then when I got to Parliament, there was quite regular stuff, mm. um, talking on the radio. And I'd done debating at school and a lot of acting at school, so I was relatively mm-hmm. confident about that. Yeah. So you just sort of, like, yeah, you just moved into that because yeah. that was part of... And you obviously were the... And crappy shift work and starting at yeah. 4.30 and then starting at 12.30 the next day and yeah. working through to midnight. And that's kind of... Versions of that has been your life ever since. Yeah. Yeah, largely. And it's not, um, that's funny, isn't it? Like, it's completely not a glamorous job, but there's still some idea. It's a romantic that's, job. That's it, that's it. For anyone doing it that wants yeah. to do it, that loves it, there is a romanticism about it, and that's what keeps people in the yeah, yeah. in the job, I think. Yeah, but you give up a lot, and, oh, God, I mean, thank God I don't have to dig a bloody ditch right or yeah. unload fishing boats or work in a mushroom factory which are all jobs I've had which have been tough much tougher jobs yeah, um, yeah. but it's it's not like on TV yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, not yeah. like the movies um, yeah. there's a lot of grind yeah. and um, you got to ring people up who aren't going to answer the phone and you ring them 20 times and you hang on while people are supposedly in meetings but that's all good and also yeah. look you get out I still remember the first time I saw a dead body as a journalist floating in Wellington Harbour and going out and talking. i got huge respect for police officers because you get close to police officers when you're a mm. junior reporter doing, like, the police round. Mm. They have to do some crappy things and you report on, you know, the people at their worst mm. and people in the worst situations make the best news stories. So it's a really good window into the world in that way. You're not stuck in a bank. Mm, you know, mm. punching a computer or a calculator. Mind you, no one does that anymore either. Yeah. So when do you, when do you think, like, beyond the fact that you're learning on the job, you're excited mm. to be there because, for a start, it's a job, mm. but when do you kind of go, man, I'm actually, this is good, I'm getting somewhere with this? Like, do you have an early eureka moment or is Look, it just uh, grunt work? Well, it, was, it kind of unfolded, Simon. I didn't, there were two jobs as a kid that I wanted to do. I wanted to be on Fair Go and I wanted to anchor Morning Report. And I used to listen to Jeff Robinson when I was 13. Mm. And it was Joe Cotain, I think, Cotain then. And Dad, I think, was the first chief reporter on Morning Report all those years ago, but I didn't know Dad that well Mm. in his career Mm. then. Mm. And my brother, to get me, because I'm a lazy bugger, and my brother would wind up a big old radiogram we had in our bedroom, and we shared, we bunked, and then we had two beds and... Then we were going to kill each other, so we had, I think Mum got him a caravan to sleep on the front of the section. But um, to get me up, because I was lazy, my brother would just wind up the radio at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was always on 2YA on morning yeah. report. So I kind of grew up with news from the age of 12 or 13, but that was happening. And I thought I'd really like to do that job. And I love Brian Edwards. Mm. Brian Edwards had a golden period, I think, um, 
it's not now. Well, not now, but he had a golden it's period now, then, and, and he was doing Facebook. Edwards Tonight, yeah. which was like yeah, the New Zealand yeah, yeah. version of the Frost Show. Yeah. And he made Fair Go. He yeah. set up Fair Go, loosely based on Roger Cook's checkpoint, I later find out. But Fair Go is just a great program. Mm. I said, geez, I want to do that. I want mm. to do journalism like that that helps people out when they're in trouble. So those were my two, back in my head, mm. big dreams. But the re- when I really got into it, I think, was when I went to work with Barry Soper for the Private Radio Parliamentary Gallery. And that was just bloody exciting. And I went there not long after um, Douglas, or as Douglas and the rest of them were doing the great neocon experiment. Mm. And the world was just in turmoil and changing. And there was a big story every week, and they kind of kept us... I think relatively drunk and just kept throwing huge reform at us. So mm. it was a bloody exciting time to watch that. We had Longy, who was charismatic and huge talent and could be relied on for great quotes. I can remember John Banks as a junior opposition MP who was just working on his, you know, style. This mm. is an outrage. And he would cruise up and down the press gallery as we were processing stuff from the day. And that was bloody exciting. Mm. Um, and probably ruined me for the rest of my career because it's pretty cool working. It's pretty cool working at Parliament. Then. Yeah, I guess it was real mm. uh, in a in a sanctum. Mm. Mm. So eighty five. You were the you were the you were the ones with the not the keys to the kingdom, but the keys to the locker room just outside yeah, yeah, the yeah, kingdom, yeah, and no yeah. one else had them. Yeah, yeah, but I look back now. We were yeah. horribly <laughs> we were horribly manipulated. Yes. Um, and as a, what, 20, by then 23, 24-year-old, I had real, no real concept of what was happening. Um, we had the Labour Party at war with itself and some very sophisticated spin doctors in Labour who were really well ahead of their time. Bevan Burgess, who was uh, Roger Douglas's spin man, and Ross Vittner, uh, who was Longy's spin man. Mm. And they kind of had a battle against each other. Um, and they were good old days you could smoke in the newsroom every time you put a new piece of carbon paper in the Imperial <laughs> 99 you'd light up and when you got to the end of the line you'd flick the ash and <laughs> so that's yeah, that's the funny thing like we're going back sort of uh, 30 years 35 yeah, years ago yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's actually it almost feels like we're going back 50 years and it's a black and white movie of journalism yeah. and you've got the peaked cap and the... Yeah. It's not that you know, far off cell phone that still. in those days was something <laughs> yeah. that was like three bricks put together and yeah. would last for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Know. And you had a team one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's know? right. Yeah. That's right. Amazing. So how long were you doing that? God, I bumped around doing that and then the Sun newspaper was set up and I left Barry, it must have been... Gosh, was it 87 or 88? It gets vague now. I went to work for the Sun newspaper, um, and Fran Sullivan was the political editor of the Sun, yep. and a guy called Mike Booker, who's still round, but went on to serve a stint as Winston Peters, press secretary. <laughs> Speaking of people who are still round. Yeah. yeah. Well, Winston was the first guy, first MP yeah. ever to offer, uh, invite me into his office. The first yeah. week I was, I was at Parliament, I ended up playing cards yeah. in Winston's office with... Cody Wettery and a guy called Ralph Maxwell and I was just so thrilled. I lost my first week's pay. I think they all cheated and I didn't know how to play poker and I still don't. But man, that was cool. 
<laughs> I was in, right? That was like, I was living the dream. Mm. Um, but yeah, I went to work for the sun, that folded, and I went across the road, left the gallery to work for um, Radio New Zealand, and was a reporter on Morning Report. And I can remember covering there, having a great fun uh, taking the piss out of the tobacco industry, which was running all sorts of rubbish uh, to stop uh, tobacco legislation, which Helen Clark was very keen on. And then um, also covered the first night of the home show. I wrote the review for Morning Report and did a voice report. Wow. Which kind of took the piss out of that. Holmes yeah. never, he certainly forgave me, but he never forgot. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, every time I'm like, I remember that rubbish you wrote <laughs> about our first show. Um, and then along came TV3 in what, November of 89, 30 years ago, mm. November of 89. Mm. Um, and are they going to make it to their 30th birthday? Well, it's touch and go, right? <laughs> they'll make it to their 30th birthday. <laughs> That's only a few weeks yes. ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and gosh, you'd hope it makes it somewhere past that in some shape or form. Mm. Um, and I'm not working on that side of the business anymore. So I was like a foundation p- people of. TV3 and ended up pretty quickly with Bill Ralston working in the press and setting up the press, going back to the press gallery mm. and setting up the press gallery there. And that was in the era of Ruth Richardson, the mother of all budgets, mm-hmm. and um, Jim Bolger as Prime mm-hmm. Minister. Mm-hmm. Who a guy he came, who I. He came to my high school. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah, he came to my high school and, uh, <coughs> and I thought, and he was actually the, he was the second. Prime Minister I'd met at that point because yeah. we were on a sports trip somewhere when Geoffrey Palmer had his yeah. three-week turn yeah. at being the Prime Minister or whatever, yeah. and a bunch of us went over to his table and, you know, you're the yeah. Prime Minister, can we shake your hand because wow. we're just little kids. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool that within about two two years or less than, yeah. I met two Prime Ministers. That kind of, to me, encapsulated just how amazingly small New Zealand was, well, which, which yeah. it was then. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit bigger now, yeah. but... Um, so that was good, and I loved TV3. It was freedom to fail. Hardly anyone watched us. We were the only yeah. people who watched us, and we could just do great stuff, and we ended up having a hell of a lot of fun on Nightline and learning the art of visual storytelling mm. um, and being a little bit outside the square, a long way outside the square, to be honest, mm. where we were. Everyone was sceptical about the place. Everyone said you'd never last. We had the big behemoth of TVNZ trying to crush us. I think it was Alistair Carthew and Richard Harmon with a, mm. our um, opposition in the press gallery at the time. And, geez, that was fun. And once again, I just felt I'm living the dream. Here I'm on TV. How did that happen? Mm. Um, and enjoyed that and loved working with Bill, who was a great uh, mentor as well. Um, and I don't know, finished that. And then someone... Kevin Mullen said, do you want to come and work on Fair Go? So I must have been all right at television, I figured. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't easy, the story yeah. of how I got to work on Fair Go, which you can probably tell now. Yeah, of course <coughs> you can. So <clears throat> in the early days, TV3 and TVNZ had a cosy arrangement about staff mm-hmm. to stop poaching and essentially to stop people bidding each channel up Talented people, yeah, but yeah. it's telling yeah. out. So it was a closed shop, essentially. Mm-hmm. I was unaware of this, but I get off of the job at Fair Go, I go and interview for them, and I look at my contract and I say, Well, I'm not bound actually, it's 
I can just give notice on this contract to TV3. Um, and, you know, I was enjoying it, but there was one of my big jobs. So I give notice. And TV3 go to TVNZ and say, well, we haven't done a deal on Plunkett. Yeah, what have you grabbed him for? Um, so you can't have him because we like him. Right, yeah. We like the cut of his jib and he's, you know, yeah, yeah. one of our up there reporters. So TVNZ rang me and said, oh, sorry, we and I'd already signed a contract with him. <laughs> yeah. And they said, no, we can't take you. Yeah. And I said, well, that's bullshit. Um, go back and TV3 said, oh, you understand, Sean? And I th- didn't understand. I thought, no, no, I'm an individual. I'm free to choose where I go and work and I've got a contract. So I hauled in a very senior QC who was still with us and I, well, that was Hugh Rennie, who mm. was former chairman of Radio New Zealand. And Hugh was a QC at the time and my brother was a lawyer. And my brother did the research work for me and basically we went back to TV and said, you are running a closed shop. That is totally illegal. Mm. And if you don't give me the job, I'll sue you for my lifetime earnings. And TVNZ went away and had a look at the letter we'd sent to them. (laughs) And they came back and said, uh, if you can get fired from TV3, we'll make good on the contract. (laughs) And TV3 were just, oh, we fucked you, you're going to work for us. We love you, Sean, but don't do that again. Don't be a naughty boy. Mm. So... I had a different lawyer working for me at TV3 just so that there was no leakage. And um, it's, and I'd figured out what day I needed to get fired on to start the, the Fair Go contract. <laughs> so I got assigned to go to Palmerston North and I, of course, suddenly I was just getting crappy assignments, right? <laughs> I was out of favour. Um, What's a crappy assignment? Oh, I don't know, some second or third break story that you're not yeah, particularly yeah, interested right. in that isn't yeah, yeah. political. So I was being given a bit of a cold shoulder for supposedly being disloyal. Um, and I just said, no, I'm going to lunch. And the assignments editor in Auckland, Mike Brock, said, what? I said, look, I don't think I'll go to Palmer's North. I don't really want to. Mm. He said, do you realise what you're saying? I said, yeah, yeah, I realise what you're saying. You come up with a better assignment and I'll go and do it. So ding, ding, ding. Um, the alarm bells go off. Plunkett's breached the sea rock doing what he's told. <laughs> so Rod Peterson... Uh, God, may you rest in peace, um, came down from Auckland and in the presence of my TV3 lawyer, basically broke my sword across his uh, his, his knee. Mm. I had to hand in the card, brown cardboard box, hand in all my security stuff, walked out the door at Walter Street, funnily enough where I'm working now, and the harm in the industry was that I was just fucked mm. because I tried to break the arrangement mm. and I walked out and my lawyer said I'm sorry I, I couldn't do more and Rod Peterson said look you're a good guy mate I hate to do this to you and I said oh it's just terrible and I walked out by that stage we had mobile phones that were a little bit smaller and I rang the people at Fairgo and Avalon and they said uh, start I said I just got fired and they said start Monday and my lawyer, TV3 lawyer looked at me and she said, what's happened? I said, I've got the job of you go. Thanks for all your help. <laughs> but I had to get fired first. So I managed to break the closed <laughs> shop. Um, and I'm quite proud of that, but it's not mm. a story that's been made public before. Yeah. So off I go to Fairgo and loved it for two or three years. That yeah. was awesome training on 
sticking with stories and television production and kind of working with people. So that was real. I loved Fair Go. Yeah, no matter what you're doing on Fair Go, you're fighting for the people mm. is the kind of mm. manifesto or whatever the doctrine. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, you said you wanted, you grew up, you wanted to be on Fair Go and you were in awe of um, Brian Edwards in his early mm. days. And and I was too, whatever mm. era of Fair Go it was for mm. me. And it was the Kevin Milne and yeah. Brian Edwards era. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, Fair Go and Country Calendar yeah. really are the kind of classic... Fair Go was the top rating program in the country. The kind of the classic pan-generational, yeah. Music, yeah. quintessentially Kiwi yeah. battler shows, aren't they? And the stories when I worked for it were all generated from letters. So we mm. got 20 letters a week we had to go through and you'd come down to three or four worthy of further investigation. And it was really disciplined work. You worked with a team of people and then you had to go and meet the people. Mm. I mean, and I'm not criticising what people do now, it's a different era, but because it was all so viewer-generated, yes. man, it was a real programme to work on. Yeah. Um, and Avalon would have been at the the kind of end of its heyday. Yeah, like sale of the still, century, yeah, Steve yeah, Power was there sliding across the floor. And, and <laughs> that's Jim what I mean, Johnson. it was still very big, but like yeah. we just starting to get towards, because when I was out there in the 2000s filming uh, my segments on Good Morning, mm. it was such a shadow of its former yeah. self, and then of course that... But we had big studios, we yeah. did the Ad Awards. Yeah. It was showbiz. Yeah. And it was probably the most showbiz thing I've ever done, but also some of the best journalism I've ever done. Mm. So I loved that. Mm. Um, I really loved that um, for three years. And in many ways, I kind of almost think I was too successful at it. I then got filched off to do a, a, a really crappy show for, um, and the money was good, filched off to do a crappy show for Communicado, which was kind of a takeoff of the most wanted in America thing, mm. uh, under investigation with Sean Plunkett. And I realised it was a really interesting learning experience that I probably did it for the money. I did it for having my name on a show. And I didn't think about it at the age of what was I? Oh, 28, mm. 29. I didn't think about it. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I hated it. And I... <laughs> I walked out of that show after, and we were up against Bill Ralston, actually, the Ralston mm. group at the time. Mm. We beat him. Um, and I did a couple of pieces I was proud of on the reconstruction of the Bassett Road machine gun murder and a few other stories. Um, but I kind of lost my lunch with them. We were in a production meeting after season one, and uh, a network executive from TVNZ said, look, it's all going really, really well, but what the research tells us we need more sex and more blood. <laughs> um, at which stage in the production process, I stood up, and this was where more sex, more blood was written up on the whiteboard, and Neil Roberts was there, and mm. my producer, and I said, hey, guys, look, just quietly, and with no animosity, you can take your sex and blood and stick it up your ass, because I'm a journalist. And I walked out, and that was the end of that. <laughs> um, and... I, they were still paying me a lot of money and they had to um, put me somewhere. So they put me as a reporter on the, the Wellington reporter on the home show in Wellington, which was quite fun, but once again, didn't last incredibly long because I had 
they had a very interesting editorial policy around Winston Peters and politics. Well, how was Holmes with you being on the Holmes show? At that oh, Holmes point? was fine. You he know, was fine by then. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and Holmes was always fine with anyone. But, yeah. you know, Holmes but was But as you say, he didn't forget. He might forget. Oh, no, no. But it was by that t- stage, yeah, yeah. I think it was a joke. And I was still yeah. a young... Mm. I was still basically a young thruster and a junior jockstrap. That didn't last long. Back to TV3, who, three, who was still had, Peter had me back on 2020. So I went back into 2020 and then ended up back in the press gallery for TV3, which I really liked. Mm. Um, and then, God, I can't even remember the year, the morning, um, Hosking left Morning Report, and I looked at three and said, I've probably done the fair go thing, done the political thing, maybe a little burnt out, but um, went and interviewed for um, Morning Report with, on national radio and got that job, and once again, Three said, you can't go. And I said, you got me on the same contract. I've just got to give you three months. We had another court case. Um, so I had to do, I think, four months notice. Um, but once again, three were suing me to stay. I've only had people generally been in uh, employment contracts with people who wanted me to stay. So I got the morning report gig, and that was just a dream come true. And the next 14 years, well, no, probably the next seven years were great. Uh, and the last seven years weren't so great. And Morning Report is legendary well before this, but certainly during this stage, you know, and it continues to be, but certainly then you're in the classic era because it's Jeff. Yeah. And some would say that Morning Report died when he left. Yeah. Um, And, you know, maybe it died a little bit before he left even, some would would also say, but obviously you were there... And I think still, Jeff and I, 14 years, we had a hell of a good run. I yeah. think we're the longest pairing yeah. ever yeah. on the programme. And we worked, and it wasn't the huge difference from that and this bloody crime thing I did with Communicado was yeah. it wasn't contrived. Jeff and I were different people. We had, did I you, had huge, I mean, I was in awe of him. Yeah, I was going to say, and did you get to know him? As or, much as anyone <laughs> does. Probably as much as anyone does. We worked does, for 14 but, years yeah. from 430 Five o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock every day. And yeah. that time, I think we went to dinner. He might have come to dinner at my place once. I would have been to had a meal at his place twice. But that's okay. And yeah. neither of us minded it. You cannot work under that pressure. Yeah. And have someone else in Bad your mates. life. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it wasn't. It's inc- not about that. No. It was a real discipline. I remember him coming to lecture a, a, a course I was doing at university, and he. Um, he had the portable recorder strapped around him and he had his microphones and he was showing if he went to a demonstration or something yeah. how he would, you know, spin the microphones around and capture all of the background noise and stuff. And he was absolutely incredible. And, you know, I was in awe of him. Like, yeah. I'd grown up listening to him and his voice obviously was a recognisable yeah. voice to all of New Zealand, essentially. Yeah. But he stayed around and answered questions, and it was a small group. And it was like, oh, this this man is an amazing version of Teflon. You just cannot get yeah. get to him. And look, I think Jeff... And Jeff, I guess that was yeah. necessary. Yeah, I don't think Jeff had a happy experience with Mike Hosking. Well, who does? Yeah, but I regarded the fact that I was there. You know, that was my yeah. second life yeah, career yeah. goal, and I had uh, huge respect for him. 
and I made plenty of mistakes. I was still, I mm. think I was only 35 or in my early mm. 30s when I got that job. Um, and believe it or not, I'm not actually an incredibly confident person. I really like to know what I'm doing and I've got no problems watching people who are older and more experienced than me mm. and listening to them and learning. And I think after about two years, Jeff decided I was okay. I wasn't trying to screw him up. I was going to. And then we kind of clicked. Yeah, I was going to ask how. I was thinking that there'd be a lot. You know, you say I went and got the job, and I was going to say it'd be actually a long job interview because the real Mm. job interview is your first few shows with him, and then. Well, as always with RNZ, I don't think I got the job on my merits. I think I was put in there for political purposes, and everything I learned. Well, because I knew the six people who were on the panel, and the next four in the next fourteen years, I got to know them all. And only two of them had wanted me to get the job. But when I did get the job, I, when the job came up, I was at, with a few other journos, up in Jim Bolger's office, I think celebrating his 60th or his 65th birthday. And he said, what are you doing, Plunk? And I said, I'm thinking about going for Hosking's job. And he paused and, oh, Plunkett, more important. He said, ah, very interesting. <laughs> and that's all he said. But the day I started, the first broadcast I got, I got a telegram from the Prime Minister and a bunch of flowers saying, congratulations on the new job, Sean. <laughs> and I can only imagine, given that four out of the six people on the selection panel didn't want me to get the job, that as is often the case with Radio New Zealand, there was some awareness of the government of the day's desires about staffing. So... You know, thanks, Jim. Um, I didn't cut him any slack as a result of that. <laughs> um, but look, I love that. And Jeff was an absolute gent to work with. Mm. Um, I can't remember us having sharp words in 14 years. And you, this was the era where you guys both were based in Wellington. So you sat across yeah, from each other. Yeah, we sat next to each other in the studio, yeah. And do you think, well, I mean, something's lost, I think, from... You know, there's something about the the old school ballet of radio where two yeah. people are in the room together running a show together, yeah. I think. And, and look, a lot of people behind the glass. Absolutely. And there's more, there's always more, more than two people t- than totally. you've ever seen. A, a, no, totally. overnight production crew. And Martin Gibson, who was a, a fantastic producer. But in terms of the, you know, I'm just thinking, like, in terms of the old-fashioned radio two-hander, mm. like, mm. for all of our advancements of, you know, being able to run... Mm you know, interviews from other areas and have Skype calls and rah, rah, rah. Two people in a room running things. Yeah. In terms of the people on air. Yeah. There's something quite magical about that. Yeah. There's a total dance that goes on. Yeah. And between I think the two and I, presenters. Jeff and I knew each other very well by that stage. Yeah. Um, and actually, even when I, one of us went, was offside or up in Auckland or somewhere, we still had it. I knew his pauses, he knew my pauses, mm. he knew my matters and speech. We knew the words that would signal that an interview was coming to to an end and get ready for the next one. Mm. So it was magic. It really mm. was. And you think that you stayed there a little too long, mm. or, or you or you say the you had seven great years. And as that as part of that, uh, I think like a lot of people, particularly in broadcasting type situations, it can get easy to stay in a mm. to get comfortable, right? Mm. This is rude. I didn't get comfortable. I well, got less comfortable, and 
you know. But something about you went, well, this routine works. Yeah, um, and that it's a hell I mean. of a good gig. Yeah, it's a And good I'm gig. doing stuff I love. Um, but I had this quiet about other aspects of the job and the business. Um, and, you know, there comes a time in every journalist's life, late for me, we're just doing the job. And look, we all, broadcast journalists who have any measure of success have some stage where they disappear up their own ass. Mm -hmm. um, I probably did it a little towards the end of Fair Go and Jeff knocked it out of me a bit that two years <laughs> getting to know the ropes at Morning Report. But for me, something changed and the more I learnt about how the media works, how this country works. I felt like I was part of something that I couldn't really entirely embrace. <laughs> so I became uneasy. Uh, not because I had a huge political conviction one way or the other, but I felt like I worked for an organisation that in its very DNA or culture did have a bias that I didn't consider pure. And I'm not pointing the finger at anyone being an aged provocateur or anything. It was just the whole culture of the place. Mm -hmm. Self-censorship is the most dangerous dangerous form of, of censorship. And I often found myself in interviews pushing the boat out in places that didn't make my colleagues feel uncomfortable, but certainly made management feel uncomfortable. And I also recognised there were a lot of people in positions there who most certainly had a political bent or will. And as one of their flagship presenters, I was regarded, I think, as politically unsound. Mm. This guy's not going to toe the line. Yeah. Completely in us where he's... Yeah. He's not one of us. He's not one of he's us. He's not for us. He must be against us. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, and I tried to ignore that and do my job, and the people I worked with were fantastic about that, but it became clear to me that you know, I wasn't going to get any advancement or move in RNZ because I wasn't. Well, what is the advancement when you're on Morning Report? Well, I wanted to go and do what 9 to Noon. Right, know. OK. And a very weird process happened that, and, and Linda Clark got it when... Um, and that was a very weird process, is all I can say. And once again, the Prime Minister, who was then Helen Clark, knew that Linda had the job before the process had been finished. So there was another telegram and a bunch of flowers. Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't hold anything against against Linda. She's a good broadcaster. Yeah. Um, but I think it'd be fair to say that Sharon Crosby... And well, damn it, this is going out. Who's going to listen to it? Um, Sharon Crosby led me up the garden path. And I said, if I'm not going to get the job, because I knew the way the place worked, I said, for God's sake, don't ask me to apply for it. And she'd originally told me it was mine, mm. then we'd got out and I presume a call went in from the government to say Linda's looking for a job, so you've got to give the job to Linda. And I was fine with that and I went to Sharon and I said, look, if the wind's changed and you can't deliver on the promise, no problem with me. But um, don't make me publicly apply for a job that I won't get. And she insisted it was all fine and insisted that I apply. Mm. And as soon as I went into the on-air interview and saw that the wife 
of one of Helen Clark's closest advisors had been hired as the consultant to decide who would get the job. And because I had other information, because I was a good journalist, I just knew that it wasn't going to happen. And that didn't particularly upset me. It upset me that Sharon had led me up the garden path. Mm. Uh, so, Simon, we talked about that. I asked around to my house and I said, congratulations, Linda. And I said, no hard feelings. But I had some ideas for, I thought, making Morning Report a little bit bit more dynamic, moving it out of the 70s into the 90s and actually sort of dovetailing it better and with, in fact, a lot of stuff that's being done now, dovetailing it better and with nine to noon. Mm, mm. Uh, so I called Sharon round to my house to talk about that and unfortunately she recorded the entire conversation we had secretly with a small tape recorder inside her purse. And she then went back and edited that recording into what she called a transcript and started it showing it to my managers to suggest that I was white-hanting them. And thankfully, they all told me. And, look, we might get sued for this. Um, I took it to the Employment Tribunal. I said it was just an appalling thing for an employer to do is to secretly record a staff member at their own home and then try and use it to damage their reputation or drive them out of the company. I still, for the life of me, don't know what her problem was. But I won that case. And I didn't ask for a cent of money. I asked for two weeks off for stress, that my legal bills be paid, and I get an apology, a personal apology from Sharon Crosby. And I won. But, and I thought I'd been reasonable and that we could all carry on. But from that moment on, Simon, I was a marked man. Mm. And they came for me. And I don't know how many PGs they tried to launch against me. None of them successful. But um, it was full court press, and I think I lasted for five, seven years under those circumstances. You definitely gathered, you know, I mean, you, you've, you, you sort of hinted at it along the way, but all of a sudden you gathered this reputation as the guy who would, you know, confront and stand up to his employer and... Yeah. Or launch, or be the attacker. Or no, or just say I'm not. I'm an individual. I've got rights. We've all got rights. Yeah, if but, I in don't stand but in up for I'm them. saying in terms of how it was represented. Yeah. It became a. Re yeah. So when did you become aware that 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 was or was going to be an issue? That reputation. I guess when a friend of mine who was on the senior management group told me that the new CEO, Peter Kavanagh, had started and at one of the first management meetings he said, and we still have to, there's unfinished business, Plunkett is still working for us. Mm. Um, and I think I lasted two or three years under Peter. But I love a good scrap. <laughs> when are we going to have one? Well, we're not. We're, we're not. not. And, and I, I don't come for people. People come yeah. for me. But if you're going to come for me... Well, maybe I will. I'll just we'll, yeah. we'll just see. Um, but but I, I wonder, like, do you remember? I mean, you were there for so long. Like, mm. do you have? I mean, how long was Jeff there for? Forty years or something? Yeah, forty-five yeah. Yeah, yeah, or just yeah, under or something. Yeah, eh? yeah. So, do you have memories of? You know, can you re go back to a particular interview or mm. or story and just go? I fucking nailed that. That was exhilarating. And I know there would be loads, and I know it's funny to ask you that because you can sound like a... Okay, well, I know the one. Well, look, there are, look, there are two or three. One mm. of them was pretty early on. Mm. 
when a woman whose son had just, a young guy, 16, 17, shouldn't have even been in the justice system, had the night before hung himself um, in a prison up north when he was on transfer. And about half past eight, this woman rang the newsroom and um, Catherine Delore, who's a great, great journey, Catherine said, I reckon we should put this woman on morning report and came down on my thing and I had a note. Her name's such and such, her son's this old and he's committed suicide in prison, she wants to say something. And that was it. We did a 20, 25 minute live interview. And I'd say that's one of the best interviews. And I've that was your prep? That was my prep. I just had to find the story live on air in front of the nation mm. and keep her together. And it was such an emotional story, I had to keep myself together. Mm. Mm. Um, and I'm really proud of that interview. Mm. Um, and it was an important issue and she got to say her piece and all they had to do was moderate, steer, make it a safe place for her. And I'm really, really proud of that particular interview mm. on report. And look, 9-11, which was just an amazing news day. Um, but everyone covered 9-11, it was an amazing news day for everyone. But I had a morning um, during, what's well, been 2007, 2008, the... But morning report going out during 9-11 would have been oh. interesting timing. Like you yeah, would have, we had Ray been... Lamb, who was at Ground Zero. Yeah. Uh, um, health reporter was at Ground Zero. And it was just an amazing unfolding story. I think mm. we broadcast, or we did, I think, that day from like five to midday. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know remarkable watching that story unfold and kind of being part of it and the other thing was an inter interview with Winston when he was being investigated by the uh, privileges committee for <laughs> putting the donation for mowing Glenn in his back pocket to pay his lawyer mm. and of course he got convicted of misleading the house the only MP in the history of New Zealand politics to have been basically found to have lied to his colleagues mm. Um, and we nailed him on that completely because I had a politician who was on the select committee who was just appalled at the lies that Winston was telling. So we actually stayed up all night drinking whiskey, maybe having the odd doobie, and they just gave it to me chapter and verse. I didn't take anything down, but the next morning um, I didn't actually get to sleep. My alarm went, and I said, thanks for all that. Drop this person at their home in a taxi on the way home. When it's with Jeff said you're drunk, I said, I am Jeff, but I've got some fantastic information. We have to get Winston on this morning. <laughs> and I said, but he's not giving interviews. And of course he wasn't. I said, but then we will provoke him. I said, ring Bob Jones and ask him if he wants to say something really provocative about Winston. So Bob Jones, so we got Bob Jones on. We did the setup interview. We said, Winston takes all his money in a brown paper bag, et cetera, et cetera, which was just so defamatory in terms mm. of Winston. Winston was clearly listening and he couldn't resist. He wanted a right of reply. Bang, we had him. <laughs> and we did an interview in which I used all the information that was fresh in my still drunk head and just nailed him time and time again. And fundamentally at the end of it, he hung up. And I can remember Jeff turning to me and saying, that is the most amazing thing I have ever seen anyone do in my life. <laughs> and I went home and I slept for eight hours. But that was a great moment. Yeah. 
that was sort of <laughs> that was sort of rock and roll and using everything I knew. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So when do you finally? How do things? Remind me how things finally. In for I you with RNZ. Yeah, yeah. But when was that? Like what? Oh God. Um, let's me let me work backwards. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years ago, nine years mm. ago. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we took a case. I was being discriminated against again, but and went to the employment tribunal, and lost. Well, you know, my case wasn't held out end of the line, no options, and I think the honourable thing to do was I'd really had enough by then. So what were you, what, what, what do you remember what you were fighting about? Yeah, well point? I wasn't fighting. Um, well you were fighting. Everybody to, else. You were fighting because you were well, every, arguing. Well I was arguing, clear everybody else he was a front person on, on national radio, mm. which didn't pay the best mm. at that time, was given leeway to appear in other things. I think Kim Hill was off doing the vagina monologues and everything. So everyone else could supplement their income and go and spread out and be another person. Mm -hmm. Now, I had practised quite deliberately, and because of Jeff's, Jeff's example, I walked in very narrow tracks when I was on Morning Report. Mm -hmm. And even if Twitter had been alive then, I wouldn't have been on it because it was very important. And this is something Jeff told me, in a job like that, that you kept your opinion about other things in politics and anything happening in the world to yourself, okay, to maintain the integrity of mm. the product and your impartiality as a journalist. But I had a few things that other people wanted me to do in public speaking and, you know, I, oh, I think someone wanted me to do a TV interview program for the election, okay, and Kim Hill had been doing stuff on TVNZ, but I wasn't allowed to supposedly because my brand was too important to Radio New Zealand, which was bullshit, of course. They were just trying to squeeze me out, and I knew that because I had all my inside sources telling me that that's what management wanted, and I'd had numerous PGs. So I put it to the test before the Employment Tribunal, and they weren't convinced by my arguments. So it didn't seem to me really that I had much option, and I was also, to be honest, sick and tired of getting up. And I got hundred every morning. It's a an amazing effort to get up at that time mm. regularly, and as much as it becomes routine for so yeah. many people that do mm. all manner of jobs that start mm. early. And I last year I had a job that started at five a.m. Yeah. and so I did that, getting up at four a.m. Yeah. to yeah. get to the to the job. Yeah. As much as you get used to it, you also never get used to it. Mm. And it screws with your body. Yeah. So I left. I didn't have any other job lined up. I just knew it was time to go, mm -hmm. and maybe end up sandwich boarding on Stuart Dawson's floor again. And how did that work out? You never quite got to that. What, no, did, Z, what did you do Z, instead? Um, ZB offered me a job doing talk, and I'd never done talkback before. To be honest, I'd never really thought about doing talkback before, but there mm. it was. Mm. So I did regional talkback in Wellington for a year or two, three years on live until I got weldenized. A couple of years in the wilderness, which I seem to have survived. Wildernized. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, well, I know what you mean, but just unpack that a little bit. Um, well, Mark Weldon turned up. There were people he liked, people he didn't like. I was one of the people he didn't like. Mm. So that was it. The contract mm. was not renewed. And mm. I didn't kick up stink about that. That's just life in the big city. Mm. But having sort of left Morning Report with nothing, I also felt confident that I could walk away from that. Mm. 
Um, but it was really interesting. So I had two years prior to this year completely out of broadcasting and journalism mm. and, you know, consulting. You had a, you had a, a, a toe in the, in the world of politics a bit more than you've had with yeah. journalism. And, you know, that was a really interesting gig. Um, which I enjoyed greatly. Uh, of course, you get criticised for it, and I've laughed at the people who lost their lunch over it. Um, it gave me a greater insight into how politics works at a practical level and also the frustration of it. I can see why Winston Peters runs his party the way he does. Right? It is the only way you can run a non-major party, is the way Winston runs it. So I have sympathy for him. And, you know, getting to know Gareth was a bloody interesting experience as well. <laughs> and I actually enjoyed it. How um, many times did he come over for dinner? Um, and how many times did you go to his place? Oh, not often. And we actually didn't spend a lot of time in beer. When we, when we saw each other, it was in the office or on the campaign mm. trail and it was working. You know, it was a professional job. And I took it as a professional job. It was, um, and I'm, you know... Despite the fact that there will be a bunch of keyboard warriors who will, help, will hear this and people with half political, political degrees who have some great handle on Twitter, um, I'm bloody proud of what I did there. And um, it was really interesting watching that election unfold. And there's a lot I can't talk about because I'm a professional and I'm not going to share the truth of what happened. But I'm real comfortable that it was a... You know, it was a, it was an, an interesting campaign, and once Jacinda was in, we were just trying to stop the bleeding, which we did pretty well. You know, hmm. and I like Top's policies. I like the fact that they were an alternative; they were outside the mainstream. Um, but the problem with political parties is the people who belong to them. <laughs> 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 and do you think, like? As a person who's, I mean, you're, you're a, a long-term broadcaster and journalist mm. who's been affiliated with a lot of different organisations mm. across formats and media. Mm. Do you think aligning yourself with one or more political parties... Mm. Once that seeps it, like people make their guesses. Yeah, well, yeah, people make right. their guesses anyway, yeah. and they're going to do that. But but is there a is it game over when you? No, you know, I don't think so don't, for me. And you know who am I aligned with? <laughs> well, no, exactly. That's for you to tell me if you want to. But yeah. do you feel you've let that slip out? No, because top, you know, top was the anti-political party. It yeah, I mean, it wasn't party. a political. It was an idea. <laughs> it was an idea. And it was the idea that if we are true to ourselves and step outside the prescribed paradigms of what policy is or what politics should be, maybe we will achieve more mm. than we do with the current setup, which is fundamentally Labour versus National, Winston lying in the middle and stopping any real progress in the country, mm. one way or t'other. So that's all really that top was about. Nice use of the word lying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You take it how you want. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why, you know, I wouldn't go and work for a major political party. Yeah. But I'd give advice, and, you know, and I've got a consultancy that does, um, you know, media trains people. Um, and I don't have any problems training people to tell their truth. You know? Mm. Um, 
And I've had plenty of people I've trained who've tried not to tell their truth. And I've had a couple of people, very rare instances, where people who I've, you know, consulted to have ended up being interviewed by me. And on two of those four occasions, they turned around and said, you've killed me. And I said, yeah, because you didn't do anything I told you to. <laughs> now, that sounds a bit, that sounds very funny to me, but it also sounds a bit like the, the dad that's snatches the cricket bat off his son and goes, this is how you fucking do it, and then just belts him in the head with it. <laughs> Neither of those people um, would have considered themselves to be kids with a cricket bat and me as the dad at all. Mm. And look, I enjoy that. I enjoy saying to people, because at the end of it all, Simon, broadcasting is about telling a story. Mm-hmm. People sit down and watch television or watch YouTube, right, to be, to have a narrative they can understand and relate to. And a good interviewer goes searching for that narrative with no idea what it might be. And a good communicator or a person who is being interviewed will create the narrative. Mm. Um, And the most frustrating thing for an audience, for an interviewer, and even for someone who's being interviewed, is that there is no story there. That, you know, this person shouldn't be on the radio because they've got nothing to say and there's no dynamic or Mm, there's no mm, conflict. mm. Right? We are here to inform and I guess in what I do now, entertain and maybe entertaining is outraging a bit. Mm. But it's got to be engaging. It can't be formulaic. And it has to, at the end of the day, be real. Mm. Somewhere. Except you're already sounding a little bit defensive about what you do now. <laughs> the way you, the way you put that. Because I was gonna. Do I, now do I look defence? A little bit. Okay. See, I can say that because no one can yeah. see. <laughs> when when they hear this, they'll go, "Whoa, yeah. you had him on the ropes." No, no. I just think like it was interesting. What, would, what do you think I'd have to be defensive about? Well, I'm. I guess. I guess what I wanted to ask you is when. Did you feel things shifted for you in terms of your overall style? Did they? Do you think they have? Yeah, I do. I do. Well, because when do you think? When do you think? If well, you tell me they have, you tell me what the moment Okay, was. so I grew up listening to you and watching you on TV and radio and thinking, that guy is so fucking good at his job. Mm. He is frightening when he's good. Yeah. And he is... Uh, he is bullish in the best possible way. Mm. I heard you destroy politicians mm. on Morning Report. I watched you frighten people in a, in a good way yeah. on on fair go, like yeah. and deliver positive yeah. outcomes. Yeah. And I have spoken to you on radio, and I have enjoyed speaking to you on radio. And obviously, yeah. we've been doing. When we have done it, it was incredibly light-hearted yeah. nonsense. We're yeah. talking about we're talking about things like fucking uh, American Idol style yeah, yeah, rubbish yeah, yeah. and music-related things. And yeah. you've been kind to me. Yeah. And if you have wanted to stir me up, and I I yeah. think you spoke to me a little bit about the Robbie Williams thing because that yeah, was that's happening. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, fine. Like I can I can hold my own with that, and I'm sure I did, mm. but. Uh, you know, then the talkback era, and particularly what you're doing now with magic, yeah. uh, there's a 
phony kind of provocateur aspect to it, uh, don't you think? I actually think that's a fair observation. It is more entertainment than journalism. There's just no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. I'm in a commercial market, and we have a very good idea of who listens to us mm. and what gets them going. Now, you say we. I guess the question I have is, was it you who decided to adapt to this style, or you know, people on your keyboard warriors, as you say, yeah. would use overly emotive things like who's pulling his strings and stuff. Oh, but, what, no, no. But, but what's the conversation that's happening? Like, because no one might be pulling your strings, but there are conversations that happen around. We want you to edge more towards no, this. No, there are. I drive it. You drive it entirely? Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just have the lawyers just occasionally saying, don't use this word or that word, we don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but I've had 35 years broadcasting. Yeah, yeah. I've so never you... been sued for defamation. I've never had a broadcasting standards authority mm-hmm. um, hearing against me upheld. But so you... I figure I know where the line is pretty well. But you must have noticed the shift. Like, you've, you're a guy who's been on air for years. Mm. And I've, you know... Well, I think the world has got... And you'd have to agree with this, Simon. The world has well, got slightly... Well, the world's got slightly said, more polarised, hasn't it? It's tricky having a say about yeah. certain things, but don't you think a good thing to do is sometimes figure you don't have to be involved? Um, yeah, and that's the trick. And well said. And we're all learning that. And we're all learning that. And I'm learning that, like... Anyone else. And look, um, I've kind of modified Twitter a little bit, the way I interact with Twitter, because I've obviously had issues there. But I also figure I'm not going to pussyfoot around because I'm afraid someone might not like me. Mm -hmm. Because there are plenty of people sitting out there who will not like me for one reason or another, and I can have no control over that. So you're, And I'm not going to modify myself to acquiesce and I guess the conversation we've just had about my whole career where everyone says oh you're you're I'm not I'm a very definite person I stand my ground Mm. and it's not that I want to beat you or don't fuck with me it's just I've been told to my opinion and to present myself your way as are other people (laughs) as are other people completely entitled to disagree with me and what's my big shtick at the moment freedom of speech yeah, but do you think you fully understand that? Because I wonder if a lot of, not just you, but a lot of people mouthing off about freedom of speech actually have the proper... I don't mouth off about it, I support it. You support so it? It's a pejorative term. Okay, so you talking about um, freedom of speech, mm. you're saying that under a slightly protected role, you've got your lawyers... Mm. And you've got your oh, boss. That, you've got your boss. That, one lawyer. Well, whatever. Yeah. You've got your words. You've got your lawyer, and you've got your boss, and you've got your shareholders, and so forth. But you've got, you know, yeah. You're still in a protected environment, getting to announce what you decide freedom of speech is. No, to ask questions about it, to ask questions of listeners mm. and of people and of organisations about so, it. So, what I mean, what do you understand it to be? That, and look, really interesting example right now, there's mm. a, a, a preacher who's been denied entry to New Zealand. Um, 
and you know we've had Stefan and Molyneux mm. and, and the ridiculousness over Jordan Peterson mm. you know which I stood up for, and I think it did the right thing. You, when you say ridiculousness, that his passport oh, got, that, sta- that, got stamped. No, no, that, that he was somehow <laughs> a threat. Not. What did peace action say? A threat to everything yeah. of value in our society? Yeah. Now, oh, there's probably the interview I've done that's been listened to most in the world. I don't know if you heard it, the interview with Iris from Auckland Peace mm-hmm. Action. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was remarkable, and the only reason I got Jordan Peterson on my programme for an hour was that someone sent it to him, and he rang back to us. I had a... 10-minute pre-record over the phone with him was all we'd been offered. Mm. Jordan Peterson rang back and said, that's the most amazing interview. That's better than Kathy What's-Her-Name. What do you want? I said, I want an hour with Skype on you from, with you on Skype from Sydney and I want you to take calls from the listeners. Bang. Mm. I felt sorry for Iris, the person from Peace Action. And that's probably one of the most, that is the singularly cruelest interview I've ever done simply by asking reasonable questions but the freedom of speech thing is so this pastor doesn't come out here in the last week I went back and did what everyone does did my research on Mm. the internet Mm. and he called for the death of homosexuals and the death of Muslims and for people to burn fucking mosques down so I and he'd been banned from 36 other countries I don't have any problem with that being hate speech and that prick not coming here right Mm. But then we've got Speak Up for Women who have been denied the right to hire a venue at Massey University campus in Wellington during out-of-term time because Jan Thomas is is of a certain political persuasion and doesn't like debate over transgender rights, which is a legitimate debate to have. I don't know where I stand on it. i got close members of my family who are fully transitioned. I have close members of my family who are gay. Right? I don't know exactly where I stand on it, but I, I know that one group of people saying that's the way it is, is not healthy. And I think Massey's saying, coming up with a bullshit excuse through health and safety and a bogus legal opinion saying, we've hired you this venue, now we're withdrawing it, is crap. But that's, ex- that's an exact example, isn't it, of um, people, people not being sure where they stand and what they, you know, no, people, they don't want to come down hard on something because mm. they're still learning their way to it. They're still finding yeah, their way. Yeah, we all are. But, but I kind of feel like the only opinion I'm going to have on something around uh, trans rights or trans exclusionary yeah. or women's rights is that I'm not the person that should be deciding. I, I shouldn't actually, I don't need to have an opinion on that because I don't have skin in that game. Like, I don't have a horse in that race. It's and neither a, it's do you. It's the society that you live in, that we all live in. We all have skin and fairness and best outcomes for people. Yes, but if we're going to say that we all have it, then we need to... I'm me- not a millionaire, but I can still have an opinion about financial regulation in this country. You're closer to being a millionaire than me, but we should... <laughs> we should... We should... Well, we, I'd, ch- uh, I'd challenge that, to be honest. I don't know. But if we are going to... Um, if we're going to say that, then we need to measure up and divide what's our you know, uh, gender-based and race-based and potentially employment-based or financial and economic-based privilege in all of that, right? Like, 
I know, I know, yeah, I know, see, I, 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 know see, I'm, I, I'm, cannot, I cannot, I know I'm triggering you now. No, no, you're, not, on, you're not triggering me. And I am it's a interesting bit. to hear you say that. But it's, but it's true. It's like we're two white guys mm. and we have a privilege that people that aren't white and that aren't male don't have. We have a privilege, we have a privilege and we have a, and look, I don't ask, have, ask a, 21-year-old guy studying commerce in Wellington who's applying to get an internship at a law firm or a government department, mm. a white guy who comes from, you know, a relatively affluent background who might be absolutely brilliant in this field, mm. ask him when he applies for an internship at a government department in Wellington if he feels privileged because I tell you what, he will have more trouble getting that internship than well, almost anyone else. You know what? Ask me. I'm a 43-year-old white guy in Wellington. I can't get a fucking job to save myself. Yeah. I don't have work. Yeah. And I'm Yet you are talented, engaged, intelligent. Yeah, and I'm turning up and I've got skills and I've done work and no one wants a bar of me. But I don't go and fucking rage about that. No, because, and good on you. Because I'm just trying to get a job and I'd like to have one. But, you know, I can't be mad at the person who gets the job that's not And me. don't be, and neither am I. Yeah, but, so, but I still acknowledge that at some point it was easier for me or a version of me to get a job over someone else because of everything that I had lined up in my favour. And right now, um, for whatever reason, I'm not top of the list. That doesn't make me go, oh, man, the pendulum swung too far oh, the other no, way no, or any of that nonsense. No, but, and I tell you what, this is why free speech is the thing. You being able to say what you just said genuinely, mm. your genuine feelings, and not play the victim is a really powerful thing for you to say, right? For you to just sit there and speak your truth. And that's what is important in every aspect of our society and civic debate is that everyone has the freedom to say yeah. what they think. Sure, but and I if don't... it's shit, have a discussion about it and lose the argument yeah, yeah. and maybe change your mind. But I did it with a really slight, and it might have been hard for you to detect, detect this, but I did it with a little empathy around the fact that I'm not the most important person and that other people deserve a shot as much yeah. or more than me. Yeah. So, But I, you are responsible at the end of the day, Simon, and totally, I also, for your own survival yeah, yeah, yeah. and for the survival of your family, and yeah. you should not consider that you have to take a back seat. And you should not consider that, that you're worthless and you shouldn't be put in a position to feel that. Equally, I can understand and empathise with those who face, you know, unspoken discrimination. Um, but I do not think that to, that flicking the discrimination round makes things any better. Two wrongs don't make a right. I'm not, I don't care about our cabinet. I don't want to pick our cabinet on what's between people's legs. I want to pick it on what's between their frickin' ears. Right? Meritocracy is a really good way to run things. Right? Well, and meritocracy should be gender-blind, colour-blind, age-blind. Should be, but it's not, is it? Like, well, then we need to make a meritocracy that is but we're not going to make the system right by discriminating against a majority or someone who we perceive to come from a position of privilege. Mm. And, you know, deep down, I guess, I don't feel like I am privileged. I'm privileged with the talents I was given. 
I've been freaking lucky in my life because I've seen when luck's been sitting there and I've taken it. But I didn't grow up with privilege. I didn't grow up with a sense of surety. Mm. I don't feel like I belong, Simon, and I don't want to belong to what is perceived as the old power structure, and I never did. I've always been fighting it one way or another. But isn't that a little bit like saying, you know, hashtag not all men? Like, you know, it wasn't me. No, because actually I think anyone of your age or my age, anyone younger than me actually, you grew up with girls can do anything, Simon. You haven't sat there in a position of privilege. And there's a good old New Zealand saying, you know, don't be an asshole. Mm. It applies across all genders, all races, all everything. Don't be an asshole. Well, I... I grew up and in a, in a, I never had to worry about if there was dinner on the table. I had mm. parents that loved each I other. I did? Yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. And I had parents who loved each other. I never went without anything. I went to a co-ed school that was mostly white people. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had a good time in life and I never had to stop and think about mm. where anything was coming from. Or what I was going to do. So that's pretty fucking privileged. Yeah, and I didn't have that. Yeah, but, it, you know, it's it's about stopping and acknowledging that it isn't just about your own personal journey. No, it's no. about it's about the... You, you're, you're talking about being about society, so it's about recognising that you're a part of a society. And what do you represent in society? You are a... You are a white male with a job who has I don't, I'm a Kiwi. mostly had a job. You know, I'm a naughty journalist, actually. You know, I'm a naughty broadcaster. If you, how do I define myself? I mm. guess if I was going to look back on my life, I am a journalist. I'm not a white male. I'm not a. I'm a Kiwi, and I'm a journalist, and I try and tell stories, entertain people, and try and tell them the truth. Mm. The truth from my subjective or objective position, my truth the truth as I see it, the truth that is available at the time. That mm. is absolutely at the guts of journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so it's interesting. It's been a good discussion. It is a good discussion, by the way. But, you know, what would I have loved to be? Oh, news anchor. You just read the news and fucking look serious. Easy. <laughs> Easy. You don't Philip, have... Philip Sherry. Well, you know, you don't <laughs> have to confront the intricacies... And the nuances of just how complex and difficult life is for everyone. And we live in a time where the world, through technology, is changing so quickly. (laughs) And I don't think we've got it yet. I don't know what the answer is. But I think we're, we're kind of divided. We're prepared to yell and shout at each other in a really unproductive way. Um, And we're prepared to get angry really quickly and angry to the point of violence and hatred. Mm. And I'll tell you one thing about my life, I have never, in all the time I've interviewed people or as a journalist interacted with people, I have met and interacted with people whose actions I don't like, who I think are Probably not people I'd like to hang out with, but it's no Will Rogers' great quote. I never met a man I didn't like. There is something in everyone, even the worst person. And I'll tell you, here's a piece of journalism that I read just in the last couple of months, and it was 
brilliant. Florence Kerr, who is a national correspondent for Stuff, got sent a dick pic from someone. Now, she didn't post it on Twitter and say, outrageous, men are pricks, etc, etc. Florence Kerr, mother, spend some time getting the guy who sent her the dick pic to agree to an interview. And she goes and interviews him without any personal sense of outrage. And she writes, I think, one of the best pieces of journalism I have read in years in New Zealand. She takes herself and her, and her what would have been her righteous sense of outrage. She doesn't turn it into a Me Too piece. She turns it into a what the F is going on with this guy piece. And she finds that he is socially disconnected. He's 55 years old. He stays at home and masturbates all the time. And Florence, like a good journalist does, interrogates him and presents that information, mm. taking herself and her motion, emotion out of the story. It was a brilliant piece of journalism because Florence decided not to practice identitarian journalism. And it was just wonderful. Now, that's the strength that she showed in that moment and maybe in mm. many other moments in her, in her career. Um, but not everyone is capable of that. So are you saying that that's the yardstick? I think, think that, as I said, I think yeah. that piece is a yardstick by which all journalists should measure themselves. Okay. And if there's something that so I the, know I have indulged in, I'm a, yeah. I'm a hypocrite like everyone else, Simon, but journalists sit there and say, and it's like identitarian politics. Mm. You know, identitarian politicians are the worst because they don't understand that they're to re represent anyone who doesn't match their idea of who they are. Right? Mm. I can only speak as a as a white man, or I can only speak as a as a, a dark woman or a refugee. Okay, and Golras is probably the best example. We have to. It's like Harper Lee, you know, and to kill a mockingbird. You've got to walk in the other people's shoes, or at least take your freaking shoes off. Mm. The you problem know? with that, though, is. You're speaking from a... You were someone who made your life and career in a style of journalism that mostly, arguably, no longer exists. So whilst there are still versions mm. of it, yourself mm. included, and I'm not, I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not mocking you yeah. or the very institution. I grew up a fan of journalism. I still yeah. am. I'm yeah. very invested in it. Um, even though it won't invest in me. Mm. Um, and I, um, but I think like when the barriers were eroded and the social media stuff started coming in to a level where people felt that they could not only have their say, that they were being heard and that they became, you know, then they, then they grew, then they grew out of the sea and, and grew legs and became influencers and whatever, whatever the evolution yeah. of it is, um, they that has eroded the model you came from. Now it's two separate arguments, really. Yeah. In a way, is the problem because I do believe in a lot of. Um, I do actually believe on one level in a lot of the idea of gatekeepers and pillars. I think structure around things is important, but 
I appreciate well, it's gone. It can't exist. I appreciate that you can't rebuild structure when it's been pulled down and that in some cases no. it deserved to be eroded. So what so, we need to so do, I'm very conflicted on that issue. So we need to A encourage the widest within the bounds of decency and not, you know, inciting people to kill and Mm-hmm. and destroy others. We need to have a society that tolerates the widest possible divergence of views and encourages genuine discussion and debate. We have to facilitate that because there's so much, you know, opinion out there. Mm. Um, and we have to accept that the homogenous kind of monolithic idea of nations or societies, you know, coalescing around these ideas is gone. There's a huge amount of division. So how do we manage that? We've got to kind of form, and this is why free speech is important to me, we've got to get back to some principles that we can apply to everyone. And then say that's how we do it and it's going to be uncomfortable. We've got to get used to being uncomfortable. And I guess if I looked at the way I I saw journalism when I was young, what was my real desire? To become a high priest. To become a high priest of the <laughs> information, you know, of mm. the transference of information ideas. And I guess I, I got there with Fair Go and I got there with Morning Report. Mm. But I guess I got there with Morning Report and realised it was bullshit. And, and have, I wasn't a believer. And have you ever thought about if you were... You know, you grew up in East Porirua. Yeah. Have you ever thought about if you grew up in East Porirua but you had dark skin and you ran down with your dark skin and your top hat and tails and ditched your sandwich board and asked for a job, yeah. if they had gone, no, thank you, we don't, yeah. you know, hey, nice to see you, but no, we don't, yeah. you got it wrong. We don't have a job here, goodbye, yeah. and you close the door. My friends who Have lived you ever in, thought about that? I'll tell you what, my friends who lived in Porirua East and some of them were dark skinned and some of them were, were white skinned, and I, I think back at a cohort about 10 guys, um, probably half of them are dead now. I had a lot of friends who were the first casualties of glue sniffing. They were Maori and Pākehā. They had screwed family backgrounds. Parents who were on minimum wage or on welfare and they had hard lives, you know, from the age of 12 or 13. Um, and I'll tell you what, Poverty and poverty of the mind and the spirit doesn't care what colour you are, Simon. It cares how much you earn and whether or not your parents love you and protect you. It doesn't matter what colour you are. And I refuse to see that sort of uh, tragedy. I- I'm not going to put people in boxes because they're Maori or not. Poor white people have miserable freaking lives and poor Maori have miserable lives. And there are more middle class and successful Maori than there are poor Maori, but they're overly represented in our statistics. Okay? But screaming racist at a white, at a white person isn't going to solve that problem. Mm. Again, there's t- uh, you know, I don't disagree with some of that. I mean, uh, the, this is the problem, right? That you're not really able to hold two different and slightly contrasting views around... Of course, you have to be, and that's what have, I say. You, you have, have to, actually have... We have to give each other... Yeah, some slack, ...enough leeway that's right. to realise we are all hypocrites, we are all trying to work this yeah. out, and it is difficult for all of us. But if you are bellowing it from your pulpit mm. as a preacher or close to it on a talkback radio, 
it could be that you're wider me and follow me change the channel sure but it could be that your wider message of free speech and your own personal situation within that is getting lost if you're saying it loudly without presenting yourself as someone who is open to hearing what other people okay. think. Okay, and who says I'm not open to hearing what other people I didn't. Yeah, I you didn't. didn't. I didn't. Yeah. But didn't. other people do because but they, have, do, they right. have their own self-interest to do that and they're allowed right. to. Now, and what, I've just got to live with that. Now, what trouble have you got into on Twitter? Oh, lots. And how have you fixed that? Oh, I haven't fixed you that. Ha are you on Twitter or have you gone Oh, yeah, I'm it? on Twitter. I've got, I've got bugger all followers. I've got 7,300 followers. Yeah. I'm nothing. Yeah. You know, but why have you? But I've, what have I've you done? What have you done to oh, improve your behaviour or work out the secret that makes it a bit better? I for you? try and because I think Twitter's fucking awful. Like yeah, I'm I on breathe, it, but I, think I it's breathe awful. through my nose. I try and be welcoming or slightly sarcastic, but not personally nasty to people. Mm -hmm. And if something really pisses me off, mm -hmm. and I've had awful, awful. I've got to tell my mum to get off Twitter because my mum reads, she isn't blocked by all the people who really hate me. So mum gets outraged on my behalf. I tell her to calm down. What is your worst hate mail that you have received via, oh, just in the last, via Twitter or Facebook or Just in the last whatever. four weeks, I probably yeah. had five or ten death threats, the sort of thing that would make goers go and get a, get a security detail. Um, oh, the TJ Perinara stuff, which is just even more ridiculous than Winston versus um, Mark Richardson. Um, and I got death threats from that and everything, and, jeez, uh, people don't go back to source. I know what I said, I know what I said, and it was very light. Um, and, the, and look, I've got to say, I sometimes take a perverse pleasure in planting just a tiny little, with a wry smile comment, and just thinking, wonder if I get a bite, wonder if I'll get it triggered. And, you know, Damien Grant and Toby Manhire and the boys at the spin-off are sure to just go for the jugular. And I generally sit back and smile and think, I don't dislike them. I don't have anything against them. And maybe one day they'll just figure I'm smiling at them. So setting something like that up is a version of trolling. Where, where does his name come from, trolling? Well, it comes from the troll under the bridge who's, yeah. you know. Yeah. But that is what you're doing. Well, that otherwise, is a, that I, is no, no, there are things I think and believe, and I know yeah, I wouldn't you just trigger said... them if I didn't say them, but I'm not going to let someone else being triggered be the arbiter of whether or not I say what I think. Sure. But don't you... And if they can't get it in the mm -hmm. spirit of, of, you know, open debate, mm. that's kind of their problem, Simon, not mine. Well, don't you think that on some level, at some time, people that look a bit like you and me should just not say everything we No, think. because that's a restriction on my ability to be an individual and live and exist in this world. But your, your ability to live and exist in this world and say what you want becomes a restriction on other people. You might not... No, you it might, doesn't. Yes, it does. And you might not... Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've explained it to you a couple of times, but... Oh, I still I'll, haven't got it. No, no, I, I know that. And then, so I'll try again. But, like, the thing is, you might not... There might be no malice, and, I, and I'm sort of getting from you that there's not. You not might not be all. trying to do it, but your very being and your ability to do what you do and 
for you to see it only as, you know, because of your skills in the world is not telling the full story. Like, I used that example before of, like, if you had a brown face and you went in and asked for that job, you might not have got it. Now, you don't need to beat yourself up about that, nor think about that on the nights when you can't sleep. But some awareness around the idea of that might be helpful. And a, a sort of dogmatic approach around I'm alive and I have a platform so I should be allowed to say whatever is not really helping anything. Like it's not, you know. So I do I do think like sometimes we need to, you know, it's like I'm not going to talk about lots of women in the world that are making great music. Like yeah. I'm going to celebrate that when I'm into them. Yeah. But I'm also going to try and, you know, clear the airways and mm. let a woman talk about mm. a woman that's making music because that's actually more interesting and more relevant. Like, if I, I'm a big fan of Joni Mitchell, I'm a big fan of Kate Bush, whoever. Yeah. If I want to go on air and talk about that, of course I'm going to. But if I can set up a situation where someone else goes and talks about that, who's a woman, that's actually more powerful because... Why? Because because it's, a, it's just a change of voice. It's just a different voice talking about... And they might have some personal connection to it that is well they obviously have some personal connection to it that's different from mine but they might have some insight because of that that's different from mine mm. and it's good to see share the one so the one thing we all share we're all human beings and we've all got to share the insight of being human beings no matter the color of our skin our age our genitalia mm. and i'd much rather embrace the idea of universalism and humanism mm. than chopping everyone up into I think about you as that because of the colour of your skin or your age or anything else hmm so it, it, it does appear you're not really getting it well no um, no no but but and you're not getting what I'm saying. No, I'm totally getting what you're saying, but you're speaking, And I'm getting what you're saying, you're but speaking, we have a different view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's okay. Of course it's okay. I'm not going to start yelling at you yeah, or tell yeah. you to fuck off. Or I mean, I invited you around here. I was mm. genuinely, as I hope you recognise, I'm yeah. genuinely interested in what you have to yeah. say. And so what I'm saying is that uh, I don't know why people, and, and some certain people on Twitter, mm. lose their lunch when I say something they disagree with. But I don't mind them disagreeing with me. I and, don't mind them giving the yeah, worst yeah. interpretation on my words and actions Look, that they possibly can. It just doesn't fucking matter. It's all grist to the mill of of you know, two, life and existence. I've lived in this house for nine years, and two weeks after I moved in here, someone on Twitter wrote, I've just seen Simon Sweetman in my beloved Aro Valley. Hmm. Um, how dare he? And I thought... Man, life's about to get a lot worse for that person because I'm I'm here for a while. But I also thought, Jesus, like, fuck, what have I done? And how how can that be the highest level of outrage you have in the world at the moment? But it's not for me to mock that person. And I don't and, mock people. No, no, it's not, it's not. I'm not saying you do, but it's not for me to mock that person. And that sort of summed up to me how stupid Twitter was because. Yeah. You know, well, we're agreed on that. Yeah, because I just sort of, you know, like I'm, I was genuinely upset for that person that they felt, that, and I don't know, we've never met. I've never, I didn't follow yeah. her, or I didn't, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know who actually said it, and they obviously said it in reaction to something I'd written at the time, and 
then they put a face to a name or whatever and saw me in the area. Yeah. And I thought, but I just thought, like, isn't that comical that that's how wound up a person can get? And they were possibly just having what they thought was a wittier side as well. They possibly, yeah. they possibly didn't care about it as much as I'm yeah. maybe making it sound like now. I just remember that as being the moment where I went, fuck, what are we doing to each other? Yeah. Like and, it doesn't, because it, it doesn't offend me at all. Personally, yeah. I've remembered it because I thought it was fucking bizarre and humorous. Yeah. And I've just sort of, I've never got another tweet like that. Yeah. So maybe they moved out of that. Maybe they got that I was staying and moved out. I don't, I don't <laughs> know. But every now and then when I walk through Arrow Park, I think, oh God, like who's, you yeah. know, am I, am I setting someone else off? Yeah. And isn't that kind of worrying that you are? Like not worrying that you should change your behaviour, but worrying that the behaviour has changed. Yeah, well... The collective behaviour has changed around that. Yeah, but you can't worry. You've just got to live your life as you do. So how... Se- you know, you, you appeared to not take those death threats very seriously. But I, I've had death threats. I've had... Oh, the TJ Perinara stuff, that was pretty serious. I oh. had people, you know... And, you know, people who found my phone, I know where you live and all mm. that sort of stuff. Well, When did that first start happening for you? Oh. I don't want to catalogue a whole oh, list of it, but well, I just don't I'm interested. Take it that be- se- I don't no, no, take no, it that no, but on some level you have to. There are people in your life you care about that it could impact yeah, on. And, I and what have you done around that? Well, or, is it, or have you been lucky enough to go, this is actually all shit and it has been? Well, I think it is all shit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, um, sure, I do too. But you still have I've to take had, some I've steps. I've had members of my family and people who have had to sort of bear the brunt of their friends losing their lunch over things I've said, and I, I tell the members of my family, give them my phone number and my address, and tell them to come around and talk to me if they want to. Mm. Um, and you know, I've got a I've got a son, a twenty year old son, um, who I talk about occasionally, and you know, I, I love to bits. Um, but I recognise that he has to carry some of the burden of of some of the stuff that comes at me. But I'm pretty sure, Simon, that this will all work out in the end. Mm. That most people aren't Nazis or white mm-hmm. supremacists or feminazis. Or, you know, most of us are really good people. Mm. Uh, but we seem to be living in a time where we're attracted to the idea that we must be right, we must be on the right side of history, and we can never be wrong. And I would prefer to think I can often be wrong. But for God's sake, come and tell me why I am and convince me that I am, and I'll change my mind. Mm. Mm. You know, I don't have a religious belief system. I have seen and change my mind enough on the way the world works mm. to sit there and say, that's the journey. So you came in here, and before I hit record, you see, I said, thanks for you know agreeing to come round, especially so quickly, and you said, I didn't ask you what you were going to ask me. I didn't, yeah. I, or, you said, I didn't ask too much about it yeah. um, because I wondered or I had an idea what you might want to ask me. Mm. And so how do you think this conversation's gone based on what you thought? I think it's been really pleasant. I don't know how the hell you're going to edit it into anything that anyone <laughs> will ever fucking listen to. Yeah. But I've really That's enjoyed That's not your crap. concern. Uh, you don't need to worry about that. No, I worry about you. <laughs> I worry about that it does work. Yeah. Um, I've given you some great stuff, by the way. I've given you some stories that I've never on the record told people before. Yeah. 
you might have to get this lawyer. Yeah, yeah. No, I won't. Yeah, good. Good yeah. on you. But, yeah. look, I just enjoyed the opportunity to sit down and have a yarn. I don't get it often. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, you do, but you... You do, but the light... I didn't answer your question there. No, you didn't. No, no, I know. The lights are on when you get a chance to sit down and and have a yarn. It's on your time and it's your agenda. Oh, no, no, no. It's what you mean. It's just people have your talk. No, I know, but when you say I don't get the chance to sit down and have a yarn, like you do, but it's it's your show. Yeah. So you're enjoying the... Yeah. Being on the other side of it for a change. Yeah. 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 And so are you going to answer that question or no? What was the question? The question is, how, like, what, A, how do you think this conversation's gone? You sort of answered that. But B, what, were you, what, what way do you think it was going to go? You seemed a little apprehensive. No, no, Simon, look, I, I actually was looking forward to the chance. Yeah. Having talked to you and kind of knowing your persona on it, I was really looking forward to the chance just to meet you. Yeah. And you're as nice and as interesting a person as <laughs> it's good when someone doesn't like fuck your expectation. Yeah. It's been a really nice Well I've nice re- interaction. I've really enjoyed it and I meant every word I said about yeah. being in awe of the best work that you've done. Yeah. I and hating the worst work I've well, done. Well I don't even know. I think I just tune out. Like yeah. and I think that's yeah. the best approach and you're sort of saying that too. You said not to me, you meant in general, unfollow me, block me, don't worry about me kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I I, feel that way about not just you, but anyone operating in the sphere that you're operating in mm. uh, when they don't interest me. And can I, I tell you what, can I tell you what, yeah. I, I guess, you said, what do you really want to say tonight? I'm going to, and I'll be thinking about it all through the through the interview. Mm. It's not an interview. Well, interview, the discussion. Whatever. yeah. At the end of the day, as a person and an individual who has lived a life as hard, easy, privileged, unprivileged as anyone else, Mm. I do not want other people to define what I think or who I am, imperfect or perfect as it can be in other things. And I would wish everyone I know, whether I like them, disagree with them, if we agree on a particular issue, I think everyone has that right to define themselves and speak their truth, even if other people don't agree with it. And that's really what the job, whatever job I've done, whatever role I'm in, you can speak your truth and you can be Mm. who you are. It still goes through the filter of the producer or the host or the or the boss above that in a lot of you ways. Talk to like any the, producer I've worked with. Yeah, I'm so, with well I'm saying like not everyone can get on radio and have their voice heard. And you are right when you said before some people they actually just don't have a story and it's fucking ghastly and rah rah rah. Some people mm. have a shit voice for radio or they mm. don't have a story or their story's not the right for the time. That, but that some, about, some about, just don't actually get the chance the to get on there. The only thing I hate about Talkback now is that people who, not enough people who disagree with me ring up. Hmm. So you've... I'd like to be proved wrong a little more often. Hmm. Well, I had a few goes at it. I reckon I got a couple of good jabs in. Yeah. I just think, you know, I think when you listen to this back, you'll go, oh yeah, he did get me there. Yeah. Yeah, not, maybe it's not what it was about, right? <laughs> no, of course it wasn't about that. Yeah. No, of course it wasn't. That was just bonus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was just bonus. Should we leave it there? Yeah. yeah. Should we have a drink? 
You got any whiskey? Yeah. And I'll have a cigarette. Good deal. Man. Hey, I'm <laughs> signing. Before you go, yeah. can I just say that was a really good interview? Well, now you can call me an interviewer, that's okay. <laughs>